I want you to think of your life like a house. I know that may seem strange, but just, just walk with me here for a sec. So I want you to think of your life like a house. The furniture that's in your house, that's like your actions. You sit, you sleep, you read a book, brush your teeth, play Xbox on your monitor. Inside joke for everyone that grew up in the apostolic church. On the furniture that allows you to act in your house. So what you're able to do is facilitated by what is there. Now, the pieces that make up your house are your beliefs. Think of them like your theology, like your rooms, your flooring, your plumbing, electrical, paint on the walls. These things facilitate actions in your house. So you you can't brush your teeth if you don't have a sink or running water. You can't go into your basement if you don't have one. You can't play your Xbox if there is no power supply connected to an electrical power grid. Likewise, your beliefs or your doctrines, your theology facilitate, motivate, and justify your actions. Your actions are motivated, facilitated, and justified by what you believe to be true or what you believe is right. But your worldview is the house itself. Your worldview is the collection of all of those little pieces together, the actual structure and foundation of the house, and the behaviors that you undertake within it. Your worldview is all of those little pieces and little things come together and how you choose to live and behave inside that house. All of your beliefs serve as motivation and are knit together to build a house that your life moves into. And if you've listened to episode one, this is a bit of a review. This house serves as your life's defining story. We talked about that in episode one. We said your worldview is the story that you believe to be true, the story you tell yourself about yourself and about the world around you. It's the story that asks the basic questions like, who am I? Where do I come from? What is wrong? What is the solution? This story that you tell yourself about yourself that answers those questions, that defines your reality. N.T. Wright said, stories are one of the most basic modes of human life. Human life, and I quoted this in, in the first episode, can be grounded in or by the implicit and explicit narratives that human beings tell themselves and one another. Understand the stories that people tell, and you will see how they see the world. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I bringing it back up after we've already talked about it in another episode? Well, you tell someone to do something, and you change their life for a day. But you tell someone a different story, and they believe you, and you change their life forever. I tell you one thing that you need to do that is good, and I change your life today. But if I can give you a fresh narrative that radically redefines the world as you know it, I have changed your whole life forever. Today, I want to talk to you about how Christian witness should play out in the 21st century. I want to talk to you about how the role of a leader, a preacher, a pastor, or someone that just wants to make disciples of Jesus, how that that job has changed as we have moved from the 19th century to the 21st century. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist.
Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Restorationist Podcast. My name is Adam Shaw, and I'm your host. And this is the podcast where we try to figure out how in the world can we live for Jesus, lead in the church, be an effective leader in the 21st century while embodying the heart, the theology, and the values, the practices of the first century church. I I don't know about you, but I just believe that if we can get back to Acts, get back to the church that that was founded after the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if we we can get back to that. I'm thankful for the church history and the neat things that have happened, but the book of Acts, church, is the ideal of what God is trying to do in his body in the world. And so if we can be more like that church, I think we will be for the better. And so that's well, that's why I'm excited about today's podcast. It's it's a little bit different. All the other ones had to do with you, but this particular podcast that we're going to talk about today when it comes to changing the story is less about changing your story as much as it is about showing you how to change somebody else's story. Man, I'm just excited for what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about the end of genius. So to kind of start us off, let's let's talk about how the job or the role of a proclaimer of Jesus Christ has changed as we have moved from the 19th century to the 21st century. And this can be of a pastor, it can be of a preacher, or it can be of someone who just wants to tell other people about Jesus, that wants to make disciples. So let's walk through that because I think if we can create clarity on what our job is today in this generation, that's that's going to be a whole lot better. So in the 19th century, the primary job of Christian witness was to change what people did in their houses. So using the analogy of the house and, you know, your behaviors being like what you did in the house, your beliefs being the various parts or elements of that house, but your worldview being the house itself. In the 19th century, the primary job of Christian witness was to change what people did in their houses. And we could symbolize it symbolize it by like a moving dolly. So if you ever rented like a U-Haul truck, you had to move and you got one of those little things that carry your boxes or your fridge up and down the stairs. That was, that. that's a perfect example. That's a perfect visual of what, what the job of a leader was in the 19th century. The primary concern was teaching people right behaviors. If you listen to the uh, episode on how change happens, you know that right behaviors are super, super, super important. And I'm not negating that that episode is is huge when it comes to change. But in the 19th century, the primary job of Christian witness and discipleship was teaching people right behaviors because for the most part, the house was good, the rooms were good, the pieces were good, they were in pretty good shape. But then we walk into the 20th century and, uh, you know, the world changed again. And as the world changed, so did the role of Christian witness And keeping up with our analogy, in the 20th century, wanted people to renovate their homes, to replace ungodly, sinful beliefs with biblical and holy ones. And so, you know, it's if we're going to symbolize that and put an image on that, it it would be construction equipment, you know, hammers, nails, uh, you know, saws, chisels. 
It was to explain the teachings of the Bible to people so they could dump bad beliefs and bring biblical ones in so they could behave in a biblical way. There was an explosion of apostolic literature that had to do with apostolic doctrine, and there were lots of debates on oneness versus Trinity or on the new birth and baptism. Is it essential? And it was renovating the doctrines and the theology of life, but the structure of the house itself was fairly sound. But when we move to the 21st century, well, let's just jump to the piece of equipment that symbolizes the work of Christian witness today. And that's not a moving dolly. That's not construction or renovation equipment. It's a can of gasoline. It's a hand grenade. It's napalm. Because in the 21st century, our goal is not just behavior modification of those that don't know Jesus. It's not just doctrinal education, but the whole house is diseased. And so we get to burn the house to the ground. We get to burn the worldview to the ground. We get to burn the story to the ground. The house is inherently pagan and it's corrupt. There is not one shred of a Judeo-Christian meta-narrative or worldview anywhere to be found. And with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have got to tear down the stories of people to the ground so that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we talked about in episode two, can build a new one. Because what good is a new couch in a condemned building? For real, it's not like you're going to, you know, go to Restoration Hardware and drop like a hundred grand on shiny new furniture and then move it into a place that is filled with mold. That makes no sense. What good is a bathroom renovation where you're going to go to Lowe's, you're going to pick up the marble countertop in a house that's infected with termites and it's ready to collapse at any moment? Let, let me maybe apply this idea to a huge issue in millennial and Gen Z culture and show you how the job has changed. So if there's one issue that, and I know my audience is predominantly going to be young adults and young leaders or leaders that are working with younger people, universally since the dawn of time, since the formation of the church and the witness in the New Testament is, is solid for this. If there is one issue that people have universally faced as human beings, and that is dealing with their sexuality. So in the 19th century, the role of Christian witness and discipleship was behavior modification. So in dealing with the subject of sex and sexual morality, you know, it was don't be alone. No long drives down, you know, country roads in the wagon. Clearly defined boundaries were what was talked about, what was proper and improper, because people generally believed in the doctrine of marriage and, and sexual purity and morality. People believed generally, corporately as a whole, the Judeo-Christian doctrine that fornication, adultery is wrong. So discipleship and witness was primarily about behavior modification and giving people good boundaries. Then we moved to the 20th century and... um 
we start saying, here's what the Bible says about abstinence. Premarital sex is not part of God's plan. Let's save sex till marriage. Cohabitation uh, apart from marriage is uh, sinful. The marriage covenant is sacred and holy. It was about doctrinal education. It was showing you that the ideas that were commonly held by the larger society a century earlier were, in fact, right. But then we go to the 21st century, and it's what's gender? What is appropriate sexual attraction? What is a man? What is a woman? And what right does a text or a church have to speak to any sexual ethic at all? Surely any teaching should be just part of some sort of toxic patriarchy that should have been left in a century of a bygone, and we should just let people express themselves as they self-identify because to do anything else would be to deny their humanity, or so the culture says. Do you see what I mean here? It's not just behavior modification. It's not just reinforcing the framework of the theology. We got to help people live in a different story. So you need to see the reality of your role if you want to help people follow Jesus. You're not the interior decorator moving furniture around or replacing old pe- uh, old pieces. You're 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 not a renovations guy hustling a, you know, a new bathroom upgrade or upgrading the electrical or putting in a new furnace. You're a demolition crew. You're part of the demolition crew, and your job is to tear the broken, diseased, and condemned, corrupted stories of this 21st century. You got to tear them to the ground. You may be thinking, that's a huge jump. That's a huge jump from... You know, think about it. It hasn't been that long. I mean, the the Pentecostal movement has been around, you know, since the 19th century. The latter part of the 19th century, we saw Pentecost begin to explode across the world. And the 20th century, it grew leaps and bounds. So you're like, how in the world did we get from, here are some good practical boundaries to a radical re-education of what the scripture says about gender being a thing and not a social construct. So how do we get here? What brought us to the place where the responsibility of Christian witness and discipleship is worldview reconstruction? So here's, here's how I see it. And I could be wrong. There, you may have more information or contradictory information. By all means, you know, let me know. But I, I think there's a historical narrative here that leads us to this point. We go back several hundred years In the 13th century, the cathedral schools are being displaced by secular universities that ushered in a new paradigm. It goes back to the, you know, the 12 and and 1300s and 1400s. The focus of education um, with the rejection of cathedral Catholic schools and the ushering in of secular institutions, the focus of education was now understanding the material world through systematic investigation, abstract logic, and faith in human reason. In fact, uh, an, a popular atheist by the name of John Gray in Seven Types of Atheism walks through this historical process where public life went through this metamorphosis where the realm of reason alone was the emphasis of the larger society and there was this backing away from the idea of God. God was seemingly unknowable. It wasn't necessarily direct atheism per se, but it was 
this kind of like unmoved mover platonic idea of God. Religion was relegated to the private sphere of life. The world was, and I understand there's generalizations here, but but the religion was relegated to the private sphere of life. The world was understood as material rather than spiritual. It was maybe if there was a creator, there was this big clock that, you know, he, he'd like made the fancy clock of the universe and wound it up, but then walked away and left it to run according to its natural laws. And so when that happened, it gave rise to certain myths. And, and what I mean by myths is big stories that replaced the idea of God as the central figure of the human story. And so there was a new meta-narrative, a new story, this like new house that was beginning to be built. And so there was the myth of evolution, and people began to believe that scientific research and progress would lead to an increase of knowledge and control of the world that would lead to human happiness and moral justice. And progress replaced the concept of salvation, that sin was not the cause of social evil, but it was ignorance and it was prejudice and it was a lack of development. But the problem with this whole idea was this was basically copy and paste of the Christian faith without the Christian God. But when there is no God to anchor everything that you believe is right and true, when there is no great cosmic judge and eventual great cosmic judgment that you know, this great lawgiver that holds a universal standard, then there is no reason to be moral at all. People can manipulate and they can create rules that only benefit themselves because they're not going to be accountable for their actions to someone greater than themselves. And so this idea, whether you, you know, it eventually became secular humanism um, but you know, there was a worship of evolution and Darwinism in, in, in like the 18th, 19th century and progress and science and technological progression became like this, you know, we just, it would become a human utopia. We just got far enough that the world would become better. But the problem is if you want to anchor the world in absolute values, you need God for that. Otherwise there's no reason. There's no point Evolution can only tell you how something got here. It can't tell you if something's better than one thing or the other. And so this idea of progress and science and evolution and technology and institutional development through politics and governance was the big narrative. And then the clock struck midnight, December 31st, 1999, and it became January 1, 2000. And it was almost like the church awoke to the 21st century and everything had changed. Now, that wasn't the case, but it all of a sudden seemed that way. The utopia of the Western dream of progress and evolution had not fulfilled any of its desires. Children still die of preventable hunger and disease. HIV still ravages Africa. In fact, it seems like the machine of progress is being manipulated by those in power. Newsflash, it is and was the very system of individualism and materialism that promised us this utopia of the good life had in fact wreaked havoc and destruction on the world, on people, on you know animal life, on the environment, and this new 21st century generation that was emerging into later teens and adulthood, the millennials knelt down in the ground picking up the broken pieces of 
Our parents shattered dreams, and it all did not make a lick of sense. This copy-and-paste version of Christianity without the Christian God seemed like nothing more than culturally constructed lies. Material things and possessions did not bring satisfaction. Bigger house and a newer car, the so-called American or North American dream, did not make mom and dad stay married. In fact, the rat race went nowhere. The endless pursuit of bigger and better didn't produce the sense of overwhelming accomplishment that it was promised. And so this new generation was staring into the abyss. And they're like, this all doesn't mean anything. And before I go forward, can I just hit pause? They're right. They're absolutely right. Progress, money, career, they have no existential meaning other than what is assigned to them. And if you're an apostolic believer and you think to the contrary, of that, you're wrong. You've, you've bought into a, a hundred-year-old lie. And so this led to the wholesale rejection of everything. And so th- this should be beginning in academia in the 70s and 80s, but, but, but now it became this broader cultural narrative. Nothing is intuitive. Nothing is an eight. Nothing is absolute. Reason brought us nothing because nothing is objective. Everything is constructed by culture. And what is called true, what is called moral is so because of social constructions. So who are you to tell me right from wrong? So thus I have no commitment to any one idea or theology. I just have a commitment to myself. Do whatever works for you. If it's right for you, it's right for you. And we see the buzzword that has come about, and that is your truth. It's not what is true. It is what is your truth. While postmodernism rightly recognized that the promises of the 19th and 20th century were nothing more than a load of garbage— that the promises of the Enlightenment as it was carried forward through the centuries was nothing more than a load of garbage. Rather than questioning the narrative and saying, well, if this isn't the truth, what is? They rejected, or our culture rejected the idea of truth at all. I don't know who I am anymore, Charlie Mingus the jazz musician is famously known for saying, when I'm trying to play my music, I try to play the truth of who I really am. The problem is I'm changing all of the time. Welcome to the 21st century. This is exactly what it's like. And so in this new world of post postmodernism or postmodernism, whatever you want to call it, the life built on right now transitioned to a life built on right right now. So if our parents and grandparents' generation, they were they bought in the whole, you know, idea of progress and evolution and technology and government and um, you know, and the North American dream and North American ideals, creating this amazing utopia for everyone, you know, this this life and what you could do with the 80 years that you had. If that was our parents' generation, the 21st century generation transitioned to a life built on right, right now. So since right now, as in 
whatever time I have to exist on the earth has no guarantees. Let's live life for the immediate moment. Since life has no guaranteed or expected outcomes, let's do what's right for me in the moment now because that's the only thing I know to be good or stable or true. Remember the old hashtag YOLO. You only live once. Now, the idea of you only live once is in the idea that you got like a whole life to build and the actions you take in the moment, if they are foolish and dumb, can mess up your future. No, YOLO was not about that. YOLO was about right, right now. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. So whatever impulse or drive or whatever feels good to you in the moment, that's the only truth that you can ascertain. So go for it. This is a poisonous story, though. There are elements of truth in it. Elements of truth is that so much of our world is culturally constructed. You know, money, like what does that like what does that matter for other than to buy stuff or to have things? Like who a career is not a purpose. Building some sort of business empire really doesn't have any existential meaning. It doesn't matter for a whole lot. This is A poisonous story, though, because it has led to the rejection of all truth, all morality, all idea of righteousness or absolutes, and has led to a world where we self-admittedly proclaim that everything is just self or culture constructed so everyone can do what is right in their own eyes. So herein lies our job. It's into this 21st century world of post-postmodernism, postmodern, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I've described the problem to all of us, but the question now is what is the solution? What are we going to do about this? How will we respond to the world as it now is? I can tell you one thing. We can't, we can't do what we've always done. We can't just update the model or methodologies of a previous century and call it progressive. And say, this is what we're going to do to reach the world as it now is. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not talking about theology. This podcast is called The Restorationist. I, I'm all about becoming more like the apostles than ever before. It's we got to get back to Pentecost. We want to we get back to the church as Jesus intended to be before church history and politics grabbed a hold of it and made it into something that it is never intended to be by God. We got to get back. We, we want to embrace fully the theology and the values and the heart and the practices of that first century church in our century. But so, uh, so I'm talking now about methods. We, we can't just slap on a new LED wall or better lighting onto our church services and say, now we're more equipped because the show is more modernized to reach this generation. No, that, that, that's doing what we have always done. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do when those of you that are leaders or pastors, when teenagers and young adults or families knock on the door of our offices or meet us up at a coffee shop and they say, I don't know if what we believe is true and I'm not sure if such a thing exists. When they struggle or present a struggle with a particular Christian discipline or Christian identity or value of apostolic life or doctrine 
What I'm discovering now is that when people come to dialogue about that theological struggle or life struggle, it's not that they have a different argument and they are coming to search for truth and we're sitting down to have a dialogue and we're all straining towards the truth because deep down we believe that one answer is right and one answer is wrong. No, the game has changed. People are no longer coming asking if this is the truth or if something else is the truth. It's, I'm not sure there is a, a thing as truth anymore. So like, you know, I, I think I want to move in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. What do, you, what do you do when a kid who's been raised in the church says, I'm addicted to pornography and I can't stop and I'm not sure I want to. And in fact, I don't think anybody has the right to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. Certainly no book. I mean, don't deny my humanity. What are we going to do? I can tell you what we also don't need anymore. But what we don't need as an answer to this solution are more geniuses. Now, here's what I mean. As a culture, we, we prize geniuses. The brightest, the smartest, especially 20th century worldview thinkers, those who get to the idea first, the people that use, you know, human ingenuity and secular reasoning, logic and creativity to speak the answer to the question that no one else can solve. They're, they're the most articulate. They've got the greatest rhetoric. They, they got the big ideas. They're the genius. They're the expert. In our world today, if we want to know if I should accept a given belief or follow a certain practice, I go to the expert. I go to the genius. And even if we cannot understand them or personally access their evidence or their arguments, we are told to trust them. It's this big appeal to authority fallacy. And at times this idea infiltrates our Christian evangelistic endeavors and our Christian witness in the world. We feel that we've got to be expert witnesses, otherwise we're not qualified to speak of the Lord whom the culture has put on trial. We're worried that we don't have the answer to all of the questions or we don't understand all of the ideas that are being thrown at us. We look around us and we say, we don't have the resources, we don't have the people, we don't have the money, we can't create the production value to accomplish our mission. And we start using the words like, if only. If only I had this. If only my church had, had that. If only we had this program. If only I had the ability to think like this famous internet Instagram celebrity preacher. If only I, if only we were cooler, if only there were less barriers to entry. That's the wrong way to approach this. Since the dawn of the 21st century, we've, we've seen the rise and fall of at least two major church movements. The charismatic movement collapsed in the uh, latter part of the 20th century. The emergent movement, emerging church movement came out in the dawn of the 21st century. That fell all over the place. Turns out nobody wanted to walk the labyrinth. It gave rise to this neo-reformed movement, which is beginning to erode and giving way to this kind of neo-Pentecostal vibe where everybody from the Archbishop of Canterbury to reformed thinkers are now openly admitting hey, maybe speaking in tongues is something that everyone can experience. 
And here's the here's why I'm bringing this up is that each movement in an attempt to respond to the shifting sands of culture has desperately gathered their geniuses and their experts and their philosophers together in an attempt to give a Christian response to the greatest cultural shift in centuries. They've got their brightest, their best, their sharpest, their wittiest, their most beautiful minds together. And they've all gathered them, put them on stages, had these big conferences in an attempt to address the shifting cultural sands. And each movement has made a splash, but they really haven't changed the world. They haven't changed the culture. They've made a few people rich in book sales. They've had some great ticket sales to conferences where other Christians have gathered to hear their ideas. But there hasn't been this cataclysmic shift in culture that has swung us back to God. We don't need more geniuses. We don't need more experts. Quit trying to think you need to be smarter. Quit trying to think you need to be an expert of cultural ideas or a better speaker. We don't need more geniuses. In fact, the scripture, the Apostle Paul in particular, offers a different way to reach people. When he so transparently wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The answer for the pagan, multi-ethnic, arts-rich culture of Paul's day is the same for our pagan, multicultural, arts, and economically rich culture today, and that is the presentation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and an experience with the Holy Ghost. It's an old school message, like really old school, for a brand new generation. It's I believe Jesus saves his, as the old you know, hymn goes, his blood washes whiter than snow. And by the way, he's here right now. If you would just talk to him, you would, you would feel him. That's what they did in the early church. In the early church, they invited people to experience the power of the resurrected Christ. It's simple. But it's an authority that does not rest on anything constructed by culture. Paul said, I knew nothing but Jesus and his blood or Jesus and his power. I knew nothing but the simple presentation that Jesus is here and he is alive and I wielded the power of his spirit. It wasn't that he wasn't well read. It's He was. The Apostle Paul, according to New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, was one of the intellectual giants up there with the great Greek philosophers in human history. He's he's one of the intellectual giants and shapers of the world. 
He had knowledge of Greek philosophy. He had knowledge of Greek performance art and sports and Greek education and Roman politics and rabbinical Jewish law. This means he would have been trained and well-versed, most likely, in the Greek rhetoric performance art of the philosophers. In, in Paul's day, it wasn't just enough that you had good ideas. It's that you had to present those ideas in an artistically beautiful, compelling way. The philosophers of his day were performance artists that were expertly trained to communicate with words and, and uh, hand, hand motions and a stage presence that would impress and persuade their argument. This would have been the expectation on Paul when he would show up to a church. Be like the rhetoricians that we see in the theater. Wow us. Impress us. Entertain us. Put a show on for us that compels us that your idea is good like the other ideas we heard this week. There would have been so much pressure. Pressure to perform. Pressure to match up to the production value. Pressure to be impressive. We're under the same pressure today. We are pressured to match up to the script writers of sitcoms and and dramas that are attempting to create a new narrative for the human race to move their hearts and minds into that seeks to mock or deride the tenets of Christian faith. There's pressure on us as leaders and especially young adults that, you know, if you get outed to be a follower of Jesus at university, that you have to have all of the right answers. And deliver those answers in the same compelling, dramatic, artistically beautiful style of culture while they pepper you on the hot button topics. So what happens is we feel insecure. Not smart. Not prepared to match the slick, well-written, wit-laden, polished, and thoroughly vetted machine of our culture. So we feel underwhelmed, under-equipped, to meet the demands of a brand new day. But can I just tell you, you don't have to be a genius. That the kingdom of God and the church, a restored church, an apostolic church, that's straining to embody the heart of the first century, we don't, we're not playing the same game. We're, we're not bound to the same rules. Quit pretending you have to be a genius. You need to choose to live as an apostolic. And I'm not trying to push buttons or preach to you. It's, you can see me do that on Sundays. This, this, this is really what I actually believe. When I use the word, and I've used the word apostolic quite a bit in this podcast, it, I, what I mean is apostle-like. One chosen by God to speak to a culture that doesn't know God a word from God. That you strive to be like the apostles. That there was something inside of them that when they spoke, despite the fact that they were not part of the Pharisaical and Sadducee culture, that in Acts 3... The Pharisees and the Sadducees could be marveled at the boldness of Peter. We need less geniuses. And we need more people that will function 
like the apostles did in the early church. See, a genius speaks from reason. A genius uses the same you know, avenues and machines of production value and great scripting like the rest of the culture does. But an apostolic speaks from revelation and demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. Geniuses speak from a place of intellectual superiority, attempting to convince you, persuade you, win you with their argument. Someone who is trying to function like an early church apostle doesn't do those things. They're not playing that game. They just show up with a word they have received from God and it comes out of their soul. And while it may not look or sound as captivating or as witty as what is produced by culture, it is laden with a supernatural power that only can come from the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. A word from God is always relevant. It transcends time and circumstance and its authority cannot be superseded from culture because it arises from another world and comes into the culture. A word from God comes with the power and demonstration of heaven. See, the early church's message did not have authority because it was demonstrably rational or exceptionally brilliant or it was uh, spoken of and proclaimed by a gathering of the greatest minds of the uh, early Roman world. Not at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul says there's not many wise, not many noble, not many wealthy among us. And the same is true. So the apostolic message does not have authority because it is demonstrably rational or exceptionally brilliant, but becomes, but because it comes with, rather, a demonstration of the Spirit and power. There's no way we can outproduce Broadway or out-entertain Hollywood or outspend Washington or outthink the secular educational institutions of our continent. Nor should we try. As the world becomes more complex, the church must simplify. Jesus, him crucified, him buried, him raising again from the dead, the power of his spirit at work among us as he transforms us into his followers. My message for this podcast, or my big point for this podcast is simple. God's wanting to speak through you and demonstrate his power through you. Again, this, um, this is not like, we're not, we're not in a church service right now. There's no B3 wailing in the background. You know, trying, I'm not trying to stoke a crowd. This is what I truly, actually believe. What will burn the postmodern house to the ground is a word from God that speaks to the lives of the individuals that are in front of you and a demonstration of the Spirit. What will bring hope to those that are so broken they self-harm? What will bring clarity to those that are confused as to what they should believe? What will bring restoration to those whose lives have been ravaged by systemic oppression and abuse? And what will bring a fresh identity to those who feel like they have none is when you open your mouth and you just say what God says. What made the early church so powerful 
was not by how brilliant they were, but when a guy showed up to church with no eyes, he went home with some. That's undeniable. The early church offered people a compelling message that had behind it a spiritual experience. They didn't try at the outset to change everybody's mind on every topic in order to get them to believe in Jesus. They just said, Jesus is here. He is alive. You can experience him. That's all we need to do. We don't need to orchestrate big debates. We don't need to have huge, massive discussions on sexuality or whatever the hot-button topic that the church stands maybe in opposition to the secular culture on. Ignore those questions. No good can come from arguing or debating or becoming shrill about them. No good. If people don't believe there's such a thing as a truth, be like, okay, just oh, oh, come, come see, just come to my church and come see what maybe Jesus can offer you. We invite people to an experience with God. We don't try to change people at the outset because we inherently believe that you can't change unless the Holy Ghost is working inside your life. So let's simplify and just present Jesus and invite people to experience Him. And what's amazing is people are open to experiences even if they don't embrace the total worldview of that experience. People are open to spirituality more than ever before, and this is a great time for a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered church to invite people to experience God. And I believe that once people begin to experience God, the Holy Ghost will change everything. And that's when true discipleship can happen. So throw down the idol of fear, especially those of you that are young adults, fellow millennials, we're crippled at times by fear. We let it rule us when it comes to being a bold witness for Christ. Cast down the idol that's made you feel ill-equipped and ineffective. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Thus, you are qualified to speak into your world about Jesus. So here's what I want to challenge you to do when you pray this week. I, I want you to think of and pray through the prayer of the church in Acts 4. Or they said, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, stretching forth thy hand to heal. Let signs and wonders be done in the name of your holy child, Jesus. They said, We're a little afraid. Make us bold to present you. And then when we present you, show up and do things that let the world know, or at least the people in front of us know, undeniably, that you are alive and that you're here with us now. When they prayed that prayer, it says in Acts 4, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness, it says in, in Acts 4. When they prayed, God, make us bold, help us out. And then when we speak of you, we stick our neck out, show up and heal 
and demonstrate your anointing and your power and that you're with us, God confirmed that he was with them before they ever said amen by an outpouring of his power. And then when they left, they were bold witnesses for Jesus. I believe God is going to, if he has not already, he's going to drop a word from him into your heart for somebody that you're trying to reach in your world right now. Maybe it's for your church or your student ministry. Maybe it's for somebody that you're trying to win that's a friend or a family member or on your college campus. God's going to give you a message that's going to speak with laser focus to whatever their need is at the moment. And he's going to back it up with his spirit. God wants to give you the right words to say. God wants to fill you with power so that you can know with confidence that you have what it takes to be a witness and make disciples in the 21st century. You may be saying, Adam, this feels like an oversimplification. This feels too easy. Well, let's stop making it so complicated. We think we have to have way more things than what we truly do need. We're trying to build something that is not from within our culture. We're trying to build a kingdom that has come from outside of our culture, and thus we don't use the same metrics, and we don't use the same approaches that the rest of the world does in order to build stuff. We just don't. Now, I'm all for harnessing all that we can and and using every tool at our disposal and doing everything with the utmost excellence, but let us understand that those things do not produce change. The gospel does, and the Spirit is what moves in people's lives. God wants to help you. I believe in you. Let's go do this. Well, that concludes Changing the Story, a very first season of The Restorationist. I hope this has helped you in some way, I'm brand new to this podcast game. I'm just trying to figure it out as I go along. And if there was an idea or something we talked about that you wish that I would have unpacked further, chances are we are going to. This first season was just kind of an opening manifesto, a few episodes to let you know my perspective and how I think we are to be in the world so that when I discuss other ideas, you know the worldview that it's coming from. I've got a few other seasons uh, mapped out that hopefully will be of a great help to you. I have one on leadership and personal growth, and we're going to talk about leading others, ministering to others, and leading yourself. We're going to talk about personal growth. We'll talk about how to deal with your habits and your time. Very nuts and bolts, but it will be coming from this apostolic restorationist perspective. Then we get another uh, season lined up. I'm working on right now on big ideas. We're going to be looking at you know, philosophers and thinkers that are shaping the world today and uh, asking ourselves, what is the biblical response to these ideas that are so formative right now? Well, thank you so much for letting me be part of your day today. Thank you so much for listening. I don't take it for granted. You have a great day. <laughs>